Hello and welcome to Series 3 of the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast. I'm Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature and host of this podcast, and I'm the author of the book Leading Through Uncertainty. In this series, I ask leaders to share their stories of uncertainty, the challenges they've faced and overcome, and what we can learn from their experiences. Martin Reeves is the CEO of Coventry City Council. He thrives on disruptive change and is comfortable with the chaos it brings, confident in the knowledge that transformation is always created from chaos. Martin's energy is infectious and I found myself caught up in his enthusiasm. But Martin brings more than just enthusiasm. He engages people through solid leadership and relationship skills. The world needs more CEOs like him who not only embrace change, but actively encourage difference as a way to achieve it. Have a listen. Hi Martin, thank you for joining me today. No problem, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you tell, for the benefit of the listeners, who you are and what you do? So I'm Martin Reeves, I'm the Chief Executive at Coventry City Council, and I've been here almost 11 years. Okay. And what brought you to Coventry City Council? So I was previously Chief Executive at a county uh, in Bedfordshire, and actually my job for the year and a half uh, before I ended there was to actually close down the County Council, which has never been done before. So we'll probably come back to that, but that was probably one of the, the major experiences of significant change. Mm. Actually trauma for a number of people going through the end of an organisation that had been around for 175 years. So I'll talk about that later, but as a result of that closing down, um, clearly um, I needed to find another role. And, and Coventry came calling and searching for, and I'll never forget the advert, it was about not being a lifer, somebody who wasn't going to finish their career in Coventry, but was going to come and disrupt change, shake the city, but also the city council up, Mm -hmm. and do things very differently and radically differently, and it appealed to me. So, um, yeah, 11 years ago, uh, came and uh, always anticipated it'd be a four or five year gig, and and here I am (laughs) over a decade later. So (laughs) So there's obviously something keeping you here, lots of disruption and radical change probably. So tell tell me about it, because lots of people um, shy away from change. People want stability and... Um, and they want things, they want certainty. Tell, tell me, what is it that drives you to, to want to disrupt and, and lead change? I guess I'm acutely, I'm genuinely, I've always been aware in my career, and more so the last decade, which I'll reflect on in a moment, um, of the fact that change, uncertainty is very, very personal. So for ourselves, we'll change our views about how we react to change, actually seek change and disruption. Mm-hmm. We'll change over our careers and our lives. Mm-hmm. But actually people, we pick 100 people that work at the Community City Council, I would imagine within that group, there's 15, 20 different senses of whether they want to go for change, whether they are attracted by uncertainty and what I call sort of discombobulation where things mm-hmm. are permanently changing. Those that are absolutely like me, seeing change, disruption, radical departure from how we've done things in the past as the way in which we get better, mm. that we create new ideas mm. and energise ourselves, to those that just say, go away, I just want to be told what I need to do every day, yeah. give the resources for me to do it, leave me alone. Yeah. And I think to respect that is really important uh, as a leader. And I, 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 I just enjoy change. I enjoy... Mm literally chucking stuff up in the air and accepting the fact that not all of it will land safely Mm -hmm. but that's the only way in which you create probably different ideas create different opinions harness different thoughts so yeah i'm just excited i've always been excited by change and i I guess as a leader and since a chief executive um that creates a a marmite environment if i'm Mm -hmm. really honest where those that 
want to follow because they see that and they understand those actually feel that it's not their kind of style because one of the things about perpetual change and uncertainty of course is you probably spend less time looking back you probably don't reflect you and i definitely don't reflect enough you don't probably celebrate enough the progress that's been made because mm. if you think about it you're permanently restlessly looking forward to the next one and is the next it, change that's quite damaging it is and it's quite important to find the balance isn't it but i always think there's also a middle ground of there's there's the ones who really embrace the change the ones who are the vehement resistors and then in the middle i think there's a whole spectrum from willing and wanting to change and wanting to embrace it but actually scared and uncomfortable yeah. and 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 so i think there's a whole raft of different responses that that we have to to uh, to lead through aren't there yeah just on that and that's what makes it really really interesting mm. and if you think about decades and decades of people academically writing about organizational design development how organizations have changed my experience has taught me that there probably are those three categorizations around organizational change uncertainty one of the things i've learned probably above all else is that you must spend more time by not making judgments of people that have different views of change. Yeah. But you must spend more time with those that are championing, those that are maybe, if you like, agnostic, but just need more support and understanding, spend more time there. Those that are in the category of don't like change for genuine reasons, I think there needs to be some empathy and understanding. Those that are deliberately obstructing where the organisation is going with some kind of sense of, I hate change, change is not for me, I think is a really important set of conversations, but you should not be as a leader taken away from the core of your organization yeah. that says, where do I go boss? Because I, I want to be part of that. I'm not happy with everything, but I want to understand it. Do you see what I mean? So I think it's really Completely. important to differentiate. Well, well, systems theory shows that between five and 19% of people will never come with you. So if you spend your time on that five to 19% trying to persuade them that the change is a great thing, you're never going to actually implement the change. So, you know, part of systems theory requires us to focus on that 80% that are coming willingly. But I think also what we have to be mindful of, and I think, you know, the, the word you used around empathy and having conversations with those people is we mustn't just forget them because they are the also the disruptors and the, and the ones who are saying no. And it's important to understand, well, why are they saying no? Because what are they seeing that perhaps I'm not seeing? Um, and so I think if we can create the dialogue with them, sometimes there's some useful information. Always. And, and sometimes not. So I, I, could, I could tell you numerous occasions over the last you know, 11 years I've been at Coventry where speaking to colleagues, sometimes big groups, 100, 200, sometimes smaller, I always find a way of trying to make it clear that whilst I will not um, you know, say that I'm not somebody who advocates for perpetual change that sees uncertainty as a positive force many times, I'm not going to change my view on that. Mm. I'm also not judging those colleagues mm. who are brilliant in many, many ways but don't share that same energy through change. Yeah. I want to understand but I'm not prepared to accept a set of values and behaviour which is contrary to where the organisation needs to go. Mm. And I guess my point is your issue about that those that will never come forward for legitimate or illegitimate reasons, I in my time as chief executive in different organisations have spent too much time concerning myself mm. overly with not with trying to understand why those people don't yeah. want to come forward and be part of that leadership mm. and 
and, and that was wrong. And, and, and experience has taught me over the years, actually, you just need to back those that are ready, willing and able and accept the fact that organisations will also have resistance, won't they? That's yeah. just the way... And I think sometimes there's a desire, if you are, and clearly you are, you are a people person, but I think when you're a people person, there's a desire to want to bring everybody because you don't want to lose people along the way. Um, but you're right, you could spend too much time trying to persuade people who are never going to be persuaded. Yeah. I think it's a nuance as well, because if you think about, certainly in my world of public services, there are over 600 service areas that we get involved in every single day as a local authority certainly a big local authority like Coventry City Council we're dealing with hundreds and thousands of transactions some are face-to-face -face, many are digital so the truth about this is you need different skill sets different types of people with different um, skills characteristics experience from very important transactional work right way through to very transformational relationship building mm -hmm. so the idea of thinking you have to have a, a kind of completely homogenous organization is ridiculous anyway mm -hmm. the trick is to make sure that you value those different things but above all never ever compromise on the behaviors the values and the kind of vision that you're here mm -hmm. to, to deliver and mm -hmm. if you don't compromise on that i think you can find a way of of getting people into those those areas some of which will, as I say, require a different kind of view of change and probably are quite constant in their delivery. You know? yeah. They don't see much change and they're really comfortable and happy about that. So that and probably very, very good at what they're doing and you need those Absolutely. people too. But that's, that doesn't make it less current or less important than those who are literally not just um, accepting change but literally finding it. Yeah. It's, it's um, so tell me, what's an example of where you've led through change? I alluded to it right at the beginning of this, this conversation. I, I literally closed down and led the programme mm. for closing down a, a very, very large uh, mm. county council. Now, I'll be honest, uh, I was relatively early in my chief exec career at that point. From a change point of view and from this notion of is it complex, complicated, wicked, the, the, the time to close down a council and build two new ones was hard work because it required thousands of tasks, assets, understanding them, moving people, um, being able to understand the money, the budgets, the politics. So there was a lot of work to do, but actually in that sense, we kind of had a programme and worked through it. So my experience of that change was not that that was the problem. The problem was, if you like, the psychology of the change. Mm -hmm. Because what people were doing, including myself, is we were almost uh, lamenting the loss of the organisation because it was the back of a big, big legal battle, um, hugely politicised um, about local government reorganisation. So the most complex bit about that change was getting people to move through almost, uh, I talk about it quite a lot as a grieving cycle, I need to move colleagues, including myself, through the grieving cycle very quickly because mm -hmm. we believe we'd lost unfairly. The organisation had to be, in effect, closed. So we need to move that very quickly. Otherwise, the tasks that need to be done weren't going to be done. And we need yeah. to focus on the end game, which was closing down one council and creating two. And that was the future. It wasn't a future that we wanted, but it was a future that had been prescribed. So I guess my big experience and learning point from that was this is not about the doing because actually bright people, resourcing, you can come together and deliver a lot of work quickly. Mm. It's just people in very different places. And including mm. myself, I, I took far too many weeks and months still wishing and being upset about the decision to close 
where I just need to move on quicker. Yeah, and it's one, and it's an interesting one because um, oh, I've got so many questions I want to ask you around that. But um, I think I'm I'm curious about um, the fact that you're leading a change that you don't particularly want as a CEO, but you're being expected to lead it. And quite often people will say, "Well, I you know I don't buy into this, so I." You know, I'm going to resist it and I'm not going to lead it. But actually, sometimes as leaders, the right thing to do is lead the change that we don't necessarily buy into, but lead it in a way that creates what we do buy into. Um, so, so I'm fascinated by that. But the other, the other thing I'm, I'm intrigued by is, and you mentioned the word trauma earlier, and also the grieving cycle. And very rarely do I hear leaders mention those words because people often think of those as therapy. Um, in, in my book, I wrote a chapter called Pain and Trauma for that very reason, because I talked about how organisations go through trauma when they go through repeated change, and particularly change that they don't like. And, you know, when there's redundancy, you don't just lose a bunch of people, you, everything shifts, and there is that grieving process. Can you tell me more about that? Um, because clearly you've got some experience on that. So, so I mean, this is in the public record. I, I spoke a lot about it at the time, and I reflected a lot on it subsequently. So if you think about the example I gave you of Bedfordshire County Council closing, you've got a situation there, apart from the fact this has been over a century and a half of an organisation, if you think about the long-term tenure of a number of those colleagues, mm. both politically but also as officers, there were colleagues there that spent three, sometimes four decades working in an organisation value attached because they want to day in day to come politically uh, put themselves forward for political office and for year after year uh, continue to, to provide political leadership. That then found that very organisation, the history, the legacy, if you like, of where you go as a result of previous generations. And previous generations as well. Exactly, because very much that counter council being a big biggest employer in the area. So because we spend so much time physically and practically at work, because then we are clearly, and I would say this is across many sectors, particularly the public sector, there's a particular value association with why you determine to work in the public sector. So you've got that value base, you've got the ethos to deliver services. Feels like it's been ripped away, number one. But number two, which is your point, why I talked about you know, the notion of not being something that I've agreed to. Secondly, it feels deeply unfair because of the reasons by which it was done. Mm. So therefore you've got a double whammy of people feeling like something has been stripped away, which is trauma and loss. Mm. Certainly those that liked surety, day in, day out, coming to County Hall to deliver services, which was no longer going to be the case. Now, many of them then had the, op all of them had the opportunity to move to one of the two new organisations, mm -hmm. but they would be different. Wouldn't mm -hmm. you be named differently? They mm -hmm. would be different organisations. So you bet your life, in my view, that was traumatic. It was a grieving process. But your point earlier on, which I think is critical to uncertainty and change, leaders have got challenges in being able to deliver programs of disruption and change, even when they were the architects and they believed deeply in them. When they are ones which are thrust upon them, there is a straight choice in my view. You walk, and this is brutal, you walk, say, I'm not the architect of that. Yeah. I, authentically, I can't sign up to it. Yeah. I'm the wrong person. Or secondly, and this situation was classic for me in Bedfordshire, I had, in my view, it was an integrity issue. I, I had a, a, a compulsion almost to see through that transition mm -hmm. because I knew the organisation that you know someone had to do it at that point. Mm -hmm. But you don't do it for a point of non-authenticity. You've mm -hmm. got to say, I don't agree with it, but we will create the new 
world. In the because, best way you possibly can. Because if you don't, yeah. then people's livelihoods, their jobs, the very grieving process I mentioned, the trauma mm -hmm. becomes even deeper because you're not moving them to a new place. Mm -hmm. And I just felt I was generally the right person to do that. But I also think it would be a legitimate choice mm. for me and others to say it wasn't our making, yeah. it wasn't our choice, someone else can come and do it. Yeah. I just thought it was the right thing at the time to leave that through. And I think that's a brave choice because what, what I'm hearing with that is it would be very easy to just walk away and say let somebody else do it. But they would have come in blind, not understanding the old organisation and then just creating something. Yeah. What, what I'm hearing you did was you were the bridge between the old and the new. And you were able to do that, yeah. and that's a value-based so, decision. So, so I think probably what what you know and what you've you've sort of written about and the clients you've worked with. The, the, the truth about this is, going back to change and uncertainty, you can create certainty. Some people think by a whole set of Prince Two methodology and a whole set of project sheets and um, you know macro-enabled uh, Excel spreadsheets on numbers and that. The truth is that doesn't cut it. So, for example, in this situation, yeah, there, there could have been a way in which someone transactionally could have come in mm -hmm. and looked at titles of jobs and budget numbers. Yeah. What I knew, which was, if you like, my guilty knowledge and my truth, was I knew the people mm -hmm. and the faces behind all of those roles. I knew some of the potential collateral damage and not doing it well in terms of loss. So that's really important because you've always got to look beyond spreadsheets, you've got to look beyond project management discipline. Mm -hmm. These are people mm -hmm. that are literally um, looking for some kind of future shape, some kind of certainty for them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you've got to look well beyond those numbers. And I, I think that's what separates you know, the great leaders from those that probably are more transactional, where they've got the empathy, they understand that people are fundamentally different, but also make some tough decisions when they have to. Yeah. How did you, and I get that you could get yourself into that position, how did you get the organisation to come behind you, you know, when there is that feeling of trauma and grieving and struggle, how did you, how did you turn it around, how did you get people to come with you? You have to lead genuinely, I'm, I'm a big, big advocate for very conspicuous and very kind of obvious and overt leadership in the sense of um, saying, saying how you feel about the change, sharing your own vulnerability and concerns about that change, but also about just how um, almost overwhelming the next year or 18 months feels like in terms of getting the job done with all the complexity. And I think what happened through that process, everything subsequently I've done here in Coventry, is if you share some of that vulnerability in open ways, I haven't got all the answers, you watch a coalition form, which is really interesting, because actually it's often a coalition of different, sort of the unusual suspects, because I think, you know what, that vulnerability is really powerful because actually I think I can help with you know, creating um, some solutions to that. So we very much built a coalition around us and you know, quite funny, people left. Uh, people didn't like uh, what had happened. They didn't want to be part of the future shape. And that's important as well, mm. to allow people to make those active decisions. Absolutely. But to do it with respect, to do it with integrity and to do it in a, in a kind way, actually. Mm. Um, so no, we created that coalition but then also, going back to what we said earlier, we, we created a very clear sense of what needs to be done. Because for those that said to me, look, I just want to get my head down and deliver what's required now, that was a, an intense job of work, which almost gave them that um, solace away from worrying about why it had happened. They just got on with the job. Yeah. Others were much better at being able to lead others through it and share their own concerns, um, but almost build a a set of alliances around some of their uncertainties, some of their vulnerabilities, as I say. So it wasn't particularly subtle, but it was organic. Um, yeah, it, it worked, overall, it worked well. Mm -hmm. So you know, it, was, it was a 
it was a tough, tough time. And I, I learned, I've looked back a lot of this, and people ask me what I've learned most over the last mm. 11 years here. I've learned a huge amount, which we'll probably touch on, but in terms of change, my own leadership, I learned more from that in effect. It's probably 18 months of intense activity than probably anything else in my local government career because it was so intense, it was so unique in many ways. Mm. There was no rule book, so you, you had to kind of go with it. So and play to your strengths of disruption and change. And it was deeply emotional. If I told yeah. you that, there are still people that politically, across that county area, still do not talk to other political colleagues. Bear in mind they went to school together, they, you know, their families were connected. It was so deeply divisive. Mm -hmm decision mm. that generationally later people still aren't talking to each other it gives you a sense of just how challenging and damaging that time was yeah. now, you know, that, that well, was and I think problem. uncertainty creates that isn't it because what you know one of the things I always see in, and and Brexit's a brilliant example of that in the in the public eye but that polarization that gets created from uncertainty because there isn't one direct path through uncertainty because by its very nature it's not been done before um, or, or not been done in that way or with that group of people at that time. So everybody has a different opinion. How do you, how do you navigate the polarisation that gets created through change? Well, interesting. I think the polarisation issue, not just through change, but I think as a result of, of clearly Brexit and other big macro change, I think has got worse. Mm. I think there's this sense of you've got um, someone's view of how something needs to be done and you've got another person's view, and they feel for some reason like they've literally been put on polar extremes. Whereas we all know that the continuum suggests there's probably a melding of both those approaches. And actually, if you disagree, disagree vehemently, passionately, but do it respectfully, mm. and learn from that and move on. Mm. And I think we've lost some of that, including in change processes, mm. it feels to be, there's a blueprint. There's never a blueprint for change. I defy anyone to say that however organizations find themselves, there is simply not a blueprint. There is experience and learning which we know works, mm. but everything is so specific, peculiar, and beautiful mm. according to the context that there's no blueprint. And so my challenge in the past to, for example, consultancies, advisory companies, has always been, don't try and blueprint us, because actually that is not gonna give us the kind of answers we need. So I think my answer to this has been in a bizarre way, on the one hand, there is an organisational determination on big uncertainty and complexity to put into boxes, small boxes that can be understood and we can sort it. I have a slightly different view. I tend to come at it from uh, almost blowing those boxes apart and make it, ripening it even bigger, mm -hmm. make it almost even more complex in a bizarre kind of way and almost work out all the scenarios of what might or might not happen. Because creativity comes through that expansion if you think that the world works in small little boxes, which mm -hmm. can be printed to manage, you've missed what's happened over the last decade and a half, actually. Yeah. So it sounds a bit strange, because again, it goes back to those professionals who genuinely want to be told, these are the jobs of work, these are the resources you've got, go deliver. Mm. I think we're working in grey. I think we're working in fuzzy areas. Or technicolour. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah, and I, I just think, you know, the, the, the challenge, in public services in particular, but I'd argue it's the same for commercial sector, charity, social enterprises, the expectations on delivery from our stakeholders are higher than ever before. Mm. The resource constraints are deeper and more challenging in my view than ever before. The uncertainty of politics, environment, uh, economics, finance is probably worse than things I've seen. Yeah. Technology is advancing so rapidly, et cetera, et cetera. We've got so much pressure on ourselves to deliver these solutions 
this idea that we could have some perfectly linear approach mm. to delivering those outcomes is ridiculous. The disruption line now needs to be kind of exponential in my view. Mm. It needs to be so different. And it, and it comes back to something which I think is really incumbent on all leaders, which is about not just um, nodding to difference and diversity of decision-making and leadership, but it's actually living it genuinely. My view on this, and I'm absolutely passionate, is for modern organisations to be able to be disruptive, to literally understand uncertainty, embrace it, and deliver different futures, you need fundamentally different faces around, not just decision-making tables, but all levels of the organisation. We well, need different perspectives, and you, and you need to understand those, don't you? Totally. And I think there's a, that's coming back to the polarisation again. There's a tendency to to go to move away from people who are different from us or who have different opinions to us, whereas actually we need a new level of skill in coming together around a table and saying, oh, actually, everybody around the table thinks differently from me, but that doesn't make me wrong. No, exactly. <laughs> and, and also a deeper level of curiosity and understanding. And, and that actually requires us to slow down, which is a challenge when we're speeding up with the volume of change that's going on. How do you, how do you find that balance? It's very difficult. And I, I, again, I think most, most leaders, most colleagues at work in various senior positions in all different types of organisations will probably struggle with this all the time. On the one hand, there is this kind of um, febrile uh, requirement, allegedly, to keep moving forward. And I've already said, that's my mm -hmm. style, and I keep going forward, where's next? Mm -hmm. Yeah, all great, we've done that, let's mm -hmm. now move forward. Uh, and that's always been there, I think it's more important now. At the same time, don't waste resource, don't waste money, try and get it right. So mm -hmm. move at pace, but get it right as yeah, well. It's not easy, is it? Balanced against the fact that my view, which I've already said, is the best way to disrupt and to radically innovate and to fast fail is ironically to deconstruct and to ripen the problem mm -hmm. and to spend so much time actually at the beginning saying, what is it we're looking at from every single angle? Mm -hmm. What are the different perspectives on the nature of the challenge and the problem that we've got? before you get anywhere near doing anything. Mm. How many times would you work with people to turn around and go, I'm going to spend days and weeks contemplating, thinking about this, asking other people what, whether they see the problem in the same... Because the challenge we've got is if you don't do that, you move straight to the doing, the action, which I think is going to be partial. Mm -hmm. But that's a big challenge for us. When yeah. there's, a, there's a clamour, and I get it. Get on with it. Stop talking about it. Move, move, move. Just, just, you know, just do it. Whereas I think the modern leadership world is going to be about getting kind of thousands of, of micro views about how something's going to work and then determining how you're going to deliver it because that will require discipline, focus. Yeah. It can't be chaotic. And flexibility and because flexibility. along the way something will pop up that you didn't foresee and, yeah, exactly. and will take things in a, different, in a different route. It's a difficult balance, yeah. isn't it? Because again, it comes back to the new models of leadership. The, the old models of leadership, let's be honest, um, were very much about uh, a testosterone-fueled macho view of management, which was very, which is still prevailing in some areas. Around, I am a manager. I am a leader because I make decisions and people follow me. And I am heroic because I am able to provide those solutions for people, mm. not with them, but for them and often at them. Mm. Um, that's being eroded quite rightly to a model of. I'm not going to surrogate my responsibility as a leader because I can create the conditions for change and uncertainty. And I can show myself to be vulnerable, but also determined to try and lead through change with you. Mm. But at the same time to say, but I know there's a thousand other voices 
and opinions which will help shape that solution better than I can. And so no longer am I, if you like, judged by having all the answers, I'm judged by its seeding power and bringing other views to the table. Yeah. That's really challenging because it's counter-professional it culture, is. it's counter-political. And it's a massive shift in the last 50 years yeah. where we've gone from that command and control, you know, factory-based, this is the process and this is what you do and you're expected to just do it and stick your head down and keep quiet to actually asking people to stick their head above the parapet and, and have the head, you know, shot at. And I think that's quite challenging for people. How do you how do you make people feel safe with the uncertainty of disruption? Hey, do you know why it's attritional? And I, I, I've, I've said this in the past, I, I tend to have these kind of not very sophisticated kind of metaphors and ways of looking at it, but I, I've always said around this and, and systems leadership, distributed leadership, it's, it's not some kind of virtual reality, mm. academic mm. pursuit. This mm. is literally a contact sport. This mm. is attritional. You don't just as leaders and organisations, it's important to set out a view, for example, from the top of an organisation and politically in our world to be supported by you know, our one Coventry approach is about people understanding that the, the city, the people in the city are more important than anything else. And everything mm. we do is about, it's really important to say that. Mm. And then also as a leader to turn around and say, and therefore, we need different voices. We need people collaborating in different ways. But you've got to follow it everywhere. You start somewhere mm. and you follow it absolutely everywhere. So when you see the opposite behaviours to that, you call them out. Mm. When you see amazing stuff, absolutely supporting that, you celebrate it and you celebrate it in a very open way. Because yeah. the mistakes I've made in the past is, is naively thinking that when you say, certainly as a new chief exec or, or someone coming into an organisation, this is what I want to see, you believe it, of course you do, or you should do, and you'll see some people go, yeah, well, Martin said this, therefore, let's get behind it. Mm -hmm. But most just need to see it. They mm -hmm. need to physically be reinforced that that's fine. Their line managers need to be told and to be reinforced that they can let go. Mm -hmm. And then you start through attrition to see the, the change of the kind of organisation you want, but it's yeah, hard. It's it really is hard. really hard, isn't it? So um, what's, your, um, what's your biggest challenge ahead? at the council? Two things, um, actually. One is, and it sounds bizarre in terms of talking about uncertainty and change, the massive um, uh, pressure is probably the right word, actually, but the expectation that we have as a city council and a city to deliver an amazing city of culture in 2021. And that sounds like a bizarre thing to say, because it will be a great year. Mm. But I think all of us, everyone who cares about this city, mm. and particularly those of us here in the City Council and with the City of Culture Trust, just don't want to miss opportunities. Mm. We don't just want it to be good, we want it to be great, and we want it to change people's lives. And so that is a massive challenge. It's an amazing one to have. I'm so glad we've got it because very few people get that opportunity. It's generally once in a generation. And, and it's a great amazing. example of uncertainty again, uncertain isn't it? Because you know, no one's had a UK City of Culture in Coventry before. No. no we will never have one again. No. So there's, no, there's a blueprint of how Hull did it and Londonderry, but the greatest respect, we're not Hull. No. We're not Londonderry. So and that's the doing of it. You know, it's back to what you were saying earlier. It's, it's how do you bring all of the people with you in the process from different backgrounds, ages, demographics, whatever it is. Exactly. Yeah. And so, it's a lovely challenge and a lovely uncertainty and a lovely lovely disruption to have, but I'm trying to explain that all of us have this kind of heady responsibility and mm -hmm. almost permanent butterflies to get this right. Mm -hmm. And the second bit is, is, is one which has endured for me and for all of us actually in public services, particularly local government over the last uh, decade, uh, my time in Coventry, is um, we are going to see continued restraint 
um, on local authority spend budgets, with service expectations still continue to be very high, and quite rightly, residents, uh, stakeholders wanting us to do more and more um, in terms of their lives and improving the lives in the city, that there is a very difficult um, uh, conundrum to be able to square reduced resources with increased expectation mm. at a time when I think this is probably the fourth major fundamental change this organisation has gone through in the 11 years I've been here. You know, this move towards one Coventry distributed leadership that the residents of Coventry and stakeholders out with are the ones that will deliver our future. It won't just be the local authority. Yeah. That shift to one Coventry is the, probably the fourth big change that I've seen mm. in that period. So we're trying to deliver this with fewer resources, we've said goodbye to a number of colleagues over the last eight or nine years in particular, and we're expecting people to change fundamentally the nature of how they work within the organisation practically, but also in terms of, of the people they work with, the pace at which they work, and, and the kind of expectations that they have of each other. That's a big ask. That is a big ask, and in the context of um, political uncertainty, economic uncertainty, exactly. Um, environmental uncertainty, technological uncertainty and change. So um, all I can say is I wish you all the best <laughs> with it and thank you very much for yeah, your time you today. I was struck by some of the language that Martin used at the beginning, like grieving for the loss of the old and recognising the trauma that change creates. Few leaders use those words, yet I write extensively about them in my book, Leading Through Uncertainty. Martin recognises that leadership is not about being heroic, but distributing the knowledge and power amongst the wider community. That's complex, but it is the world we live in, and we need to develop leaders who think and operate in this way. Coventry has undergone massive change under Martin's leadership. I hope he expands his impact to the wider world. I know we're in safe hands with leaders like him. How are you disrupting the future for the better? That's it for this week. I was your host, Jude Jennison, and I hope you were as inspired as I was. Keep leading and come back soon for the next interview on Leading Through Uncertainty. Mm-hmm.